This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, turn in your Bibles um, to Isaiah chapter 5. So last week we began a new series on the book of Isaiah. And today we're going to look um, at chapter 5. We're going to kind of go back and we'll catch up some from verses of chapters 2, 3, and, and 4 um, as well. We talked about part of chapter 1 and chapter 2 last week. We'll kind of, as we walk through, um, we'll kind of go back and fill in some blanks, you know, catch up some things as we go along. If you weren't able to get um, an, a handout to the introduction to Isaiah, there's plenty that are kind of laying around different parts of the church grab one of these it'll kind of help you in sort of looking at themes and getting the big picture of the of the book but let's look this morning at chapter 5 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and one of the things we talked about last week is that Isaiah is a literary genius and the poetry in Isaiah is just some of the greatest ever written and this is sometimes referred to as a love song at the beginning of chapter five, and as we'll see, it's a, it's a heartbreaking love song, as God's heart is breaking because his people have received his grace in vain. And so let's look at it together. Isaiah chapter five, and let's look at verses one through seven. God says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard, The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now, I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that by your spirit that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. We, we pray that you would work deeply in our hearts. We pray that you would guard us against anything that could distract. Lord, give us the grace to, to listen to your spirit and to take in your word that it might bear fruit that remains in our lives. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 
the Apostle Paul gives us one of the most beautiful statements of the gospel, of, of God's amazing grace. He says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the one who never sinned became sin for us, took our sins on himself on the cross so that we can take his righteousness when we are united to him by faith. That's what the reformers referred to as the, the great exchange, the sweet exchange. He took our sin, we take his righteousness. What love, what amazing grace. But then in the very next verse, in the first verse of chapter six, Paul gives a warning. And he says, working together with him, we appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't turn your back on God's grace. Don't spurn the grace that has been offered to you. And what we see in chapter five of Isaiah is a people who have done that very thing. They have spurned the grace of God. They have turned their backs on the one who has offered them amazing grace. And, and Isaiah is picturing this as an incredibly conscientious vineyard owner and a vineyard that should produce incredible grapes but instead produces worthless grapes. So what do we see here at the beginning of Isaiah 5. Look at verses 1 and 2. God says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So, looking at verse 1, Three times here in verse one, uh, Israel is referred to as the one that God loves. The people who had turned their backs on God's grace were not just any people. They were a people that God had poured himself into. He had chosen them out of all the peoples of the earth to be blessed and to be a blessing to the rest of the world. He had fought their battles. He had rescued them from slavery. He had been with them in the desert. He had given them land, the promised land. He had given them his law. God had poured his grace into them. And, and yet what had they done? What fruit had, had come from that? Now, now listen, God compares his investment in Israel with a super conscientious vineyard owner. Because what had this, this vineyard owner done for his vineyard? Verse one, he had, he had planted the vineyard on a very fertile hill. This was a hill that would have just the right amount of sunlight. It was a hill that had the perfect kind of soil for growing the best grapes. It was a very fertile hill. 
What else had he done? Verse two, he broke up the soil and cleared it of stones. If you visit Israel, you notice a lot of stones. It's the limestone outcroppings of the area make for incredibly fertile soil, but they also produce a lot of rocks on the surface, and there are rocks everywhere in Israel. And so to farm, those rocks have to be removed. It's, it, it's incredibly difficult to do it, but this vineyard owner has done it. He's broken up the soil. He has cleared the rocks away. What else? Verse two, he planted it with the, not just any vines, he planted it with the finest vines. You know, these vines are not gonna produce, you know, convenience store wine. This is not gonna, you're not gonna pick this up at 7-Eleven. This is going to be vintage wine. The finest vines. Not only that, but what else? Verse two, he built a tower in the middle of it. And so this tower was for a watchman who would, who would live there in the tower and his job would be to watch over the vineyard, to protect it from thieves, to protect it from marauding animals that could damage the grapes. And he even dug a wine press there. In other words, Everything was perfect. Everything was set up for the best grapes. But what happens? The end of verse two. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. And the word here for worthless could be translated as as rancid or stinking. Now, there are two and only two possibilities (laughs) for the blame in this catastrophic failure. It's either the owner's fault or it's the vineyard's fault, and it's not the owner's fault. Verses three and four. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? These are rhetorical questions, right? We we know the answers. It's not the owner's fault. He has done everything he could do. So what's he gonna do now? Verses five and six. Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. But of course, this love song is not about grapes, right? It's God talking about. He tells us in verse seven, For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Whitaker Chambers was an an American communist who spied for the Soviet Union but then he kind of under, underwent a whole revolution in his thinking and he became uh, an implacable anti-communist. And he wrote a memoir called Witness. And in Witness, Whitaker Chambers tells the story of another man who had a, an ideological journey that, that paralleled his. This man was a German diplomat 
um, very pro-communist, very pro-Soviet, and, uh, and then this, this man found himself one night in the middle of Moscow. And in the middle of the night, he hears screaming. That was it. He just heard screaming. It was the screams, it was the, the cries of despair of people who were being tortured by the KGB. And his life changed that night. Verse seven says that God hears cries of despair coming from Israel. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. What's going on here? Well, to understand what's happening, you need to understand something about the setting of when Isaiah begins his ministry in about 740 BC. So it was a time in Israel that was prosperous, right? Uh, the, the economically, they were, they were rolling. Things were humming, at least for certain people. At least for the people that were running the country. There was another group of people in Israel that were being trampled upon by them. The affluence that they were enjoying had been built on corruption and the oppression of other people who were crying out in despair. You know, imagine you know, finding yourself on an antebellum plantation in the South before the Civil War. And you know, it's beautiful, beautiful plantation house and everything is gorgeous and the people there are beautifully dressed. You know, it's like gone with the wind. You expect uh, Clark Gable or Vivian Lee to walk out, you know, any second. But then you look out the window and off in the fields in the distance, you can, you can look out and you can see slaves bent over in the midday sun in the heat bent over and you can see scars on their bare backs that had come from the master's lash. And you understand that the affluence that you're in has been built on the oppression of other people. And God brought judgment on our country because of that. Abraham Lincoln saw it in maybe the greatest speech in American history Lincoln's second inaugural address ascribed inside the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. It was early 1865. The war was still going on. And, and Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, was trying to make sense of the meaning of all of this. And he sees that it's the judgment of God, not just on the South, but on North and South for allowing the evil of slavery to begin with. Lincoln said in that incredible address of both North and South, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And now he quotes from Jesus. Woe unto the world because of offenses. 
For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Wow. I want to tell you something. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Our holy God will not wink at evil. So what are the worthless, stinking grapes that we're going to bring judgment on Israel? Let's kind of go back and catch up some things from chapters 2 and, and following. So what do we see here in chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8? God says their land is full of silver and gold. And there is no limit to their treasures. They are rolling in luxury. Their land is also full of horses. And there's no limits to, limit to their chariots. They are militarily powerful. But oh, their land is full of something else too. Verse 8. Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. The look on their faces testifies against them. And like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster on themselves. Look at chapter 3 and, and verses 15 through 17. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord also says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, prancing along, jingling their ankle bracelets, the Lord will put scabs on the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. Now, the picture here is it's not just talking about Females. The, the, the imagery here is of Israel as a whole. Haughty. Arrogant. Affluent. While grinding the faces of the poor at the same time. So what is God going to do? What's he going to do? God is not mocked. What does he say in, in chapter 2 and Verses 11 and 12, God says the pride of mankind will be humbled and human loftiness will be brought low. 
The Lord alone will be exalted on that day, for a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. It will be humbled. And God's instrument for their humbling was going to be the Assyrian army. And he tells us about it in chapter 5 and verses 26 and following. He raises a signal flag for the distant nations and whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Look how quickly and swiftly they come. The Assyrians are coming. But who's in charge here? Is it the big shot Assyrian army that's coming? Are they the ones who are in charge of judgment? Oh no, oh no. A sovereign God just whistles and they come running. They are nothing. The Assyrians were nothing but putty in his hands. This is going to be God's judgment. Verse 27, none of them grows weary or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. No belt is loose and no sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharpened and all their bows strong. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion's. They roar like young lions. They growl and seize their prey and carry it off and no one can rescue it. This is what's going to happen. God is saying there, there is going to be judgment. The Assyrians are going to come and they are going to be like young lions and they are going to carry you off like prey into exile. But it will be God's judgment. You say, well, Pastor, Isaiah sure talks a lot about judgment. <laughs> he talks a lot about sin. You know, this isn't doing much for my self-esteem. Friends, what we need is not more self-esteem. What we need is more humility and more Christ-esteem. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. But as Ray Ortland says, in order for us to get to God glorification, sometimes God has to deconstruct our self-glorification. And that's painful. And sometimes God has to wound us so that he can give us a deeper healing. And he can give us that healing. You know why? Because he gave his son to be wounded in our place. And that's one of the themes in Isaiah, right, that we talked about last week. The suffering servant, the Lord Jesus that's going to come, and, and Jesus, Jesus is wounded for us so that we can be healed. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. What love. What grace. But what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do about God's grace? You know, we have to be very careful to draw parallels between our culture today and, and ancient Israel. And you'll see as we walk through Isaiah, I am super careful about doing that. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that there are parallels between Israel in 740 BC and 21st century America because we too are incredibly affluent. And if you don't believe that we are rich, 
then travel some to the non-tourist parts of this world and you will see that even the average American is wealthy. We are affluent. We live in an incredibly materialistic culture and a narcissistic culture. You know, it's all about me. An idolatrous culture in many ways. And we Christians are not immune. You know, this is the air that we breathe. And we can so easily be impacted by all of this and just get sucked right up into it. Meanwhile, we live in a world full of need. Desperate need. It calls for repentance. And repentance requires fruit. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not just words. Repentance is actions. A couple of things for us here. First of all, fight selfish indulgence by giving. Fight selfish, selfish indulgence by giving. God is bringing judgment on his people because of their selfish indulgence. One of the ways that we fight selfish indulgence is by learning how to give. You want to start living like it's not all about you? Start handling your money like it's not all about you. You know, our church is far from perfect, but our church puts its money where its mouth is when it comes to missions. The percentage of our budget that is allocated to missions vastly exceeds that of the average church, and that doesn't even include the special offerings that we give to missions. As you give through our church, you are sending an army of missionaries who are going to the last, the least, and the lost throughout the, the earth. You are touching the most needy people in the most needy places with the gospel. Your missionaries are giving the gospel. They are giving food. They are giving medical care. They are giving disaster relief. And what's more, as they do all of that, they are planting gospel-centered churches so that the work can be sustained. Not only does our church touch the world with the gospel through our giving, but our community as well. The Coalition Against Poverty in Suffolk, Peninsula Rescue Mission, the Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater, the Salvation Army, Jail Ministry, and more. We're impacting our state through the SBC of Virginia. We're impacting North America through the North American Mission Board. We're even impacting seminaries that are training up more workers to go out. You do all of that as you give through our church. But giving is a decision. We have to decide whether we can live a little more simply than others might simply live. And we have to decide whether we can really trust God to provide for us if we give or if we give more. We can fight selfish indulgence by giving. Second, we can fight cruelty with kindness. Fight cruelty with kindness. 
God is a holy God. And he calls us to be a holy people, a people that are distinct, a people that are set apart. And, and we should be known as his, his holy people, not just for the things that we're against. And yes, we have to stand against some things. But we should be known not just for the things we're against, but for what we're for and for how we treat other people. Listen, God brought judgment on Israel because of their failure to bear fruit. What fruit does he call us to bear? Galatians 5, verses 22 and following. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is this fruit being born in your life? Where does it begin? It begins with the people that are closest to you. It begins with your own family and your own marriage. Are you one person in public and another person behind the closed door of your home? Oh God, give us families that model the love and the grace and the kindness of Christ within our family life. And when we go through difficulties in marriage or family or whatever, and we will, because it's hard, but when we go through difficulties, may we bear the fruit of forgiveness and tenderness and humility and gentleness and grace as we walk through those things. In, in your job or in your school, Understand that you represent Christ. Represent him with kindness. Represent him with a, with a, with a smile, a warm smile, and, 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 and positivity, and, and a servant spirit. Be the person in your group of friends, in your school, or where you work, that is known for your kindness, known for your willingness to serve, to go the extra mile to minister to those in need, to listen to those who are hurting. Be a person in our community who is reaching out to others. And, and not just to people who are, you know, who, are, who are a lot like you. The world does that. Reach out to people who are different. Different race, different economic background, standing or whatever. Reach out to people who are not just kind of, you know, somebody who would naturally be your friend or somebody who is in a position to help you. Reach out to people who are in no position to help you. Reach out to the lonely and the hurting and the people who are forgotten by this world, but who are not forgotten by our God. Now, as we model this kind of kindness through our lives and, and as a community, what we're actually doing is that we are modeling in the present what God is going to bring about in the future. And here we come to another massive theme in Isaiah, which we talked about last week, and that's the glorious future that God is going to bring. We sung it earlier. May your glory fill the whole earth as the waters or the sea. That's going to happen, right? That's another huge theme in Isaiah. 
And just before this brokenhearted love song, at the beginning of chapter 5, which is about judgment, Isaiah has painted this beautiful picture in chapter 4 of, of the new creation that God is going to bring when Christ returns. So what does he say in chapter 4 and verse 2? On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. What kind of branch of the Lord is he talking about? Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5 clarifies. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. This is when Christ returns and rules and reigns as a righteous branch. But in his first coming, he did not appear as as a a, a glorious and, and beautiful branch, at least not to most people. No. He, he, he grew up like as a little plant that no one noticed, as like a, a, a twig out of dry ground. Look again at Isaiah 53. It says of Jesus in verse 2, He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil, He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention. No special appearance that we should want to follow him. No. He was a humble carpenter from a tiny town, Nazareth. Born to a couple so poor and so lacking in influence that they couldn't even arrange for him to be born in a room inside a building. He had to be born out in a stable for animals. And then he's, he comes up in these humble circumstances, and, and even as he begins his public ministry, he is, he's despised and, and rejected by most, certainly by the leadership of the nation, to the point that he is hung upon a cross. But something else was going on, right? This baby in the manger was no ordinary baby. He was going to go on to live the sinless life that we could never live. And on our cross, on the cross, he becomes a suffering servant, the suffering servant that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 53. This servant who suffers and who takes our sins and our iniquities upon himself. Who's wounded so that we can be healed. And who then conquers death, rises from the grave and ascends to the right hand of God where he reigns as king. And from there he will come again to make all things new. Chapter 4 and verse 6 tells us that he will be, for, the, for his people, a shelter. And there will be a shelter for shade by, from heat by day, and a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. You know, one day, 
the storms of this life will be over. You know why? Because the suffering servant has gone right into the heart of the storm on our behalf. Jesus went right into the heart of the storm and took the storm, took the storm of our sins and our iniquities upon himself so that we could be forgiven and healed and rose from the dead, conquered death so that we can have eternal life. Flee to Christ for refuge and for shelter now. And you will enjoy his refuge and shelter forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing prophecy of Isaiah. We thank you for the clarity of the good news of the gospel that we see here and your amazing grace. Lord, we, we pray that we would not turn away from your amazing grace, that we would not waste the opportunity that we have been given to know you. Father, I pray for anyone in, in my hearing, whether in this room or watching by live stream or video, that does not know Christ as Savior and Lord and King. I pray that by your Spirit, you would touch their hearts to turn from trying to do life apart from Christ and to turn to him in repentance and faith. Father, may, may you do a deep work in, in your people. Lord, we, there are so many things about this that are, that are convicting and humbling. Lord, Lord, may you convict us. May you humble us. Um, that you might rule and reign in our lives and that we might truly glorify you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen. Well, listen, we are so glad uh, that you joined us today, whether you were here or whether you were um, watching. If you've got a need in your life, if you wanna talk with, with me, or any of our pastors, we are going to be here afterwards. We would love to be able to come alongside you and talk or pray. Or if you're watching and you've got any sort of a need, um, it would just be a great privilege uh, for us to minister to you. Give us a call. Um, reach out to us. Email us, whatever. Um, we would love nothing more than to just come alongside uh, you and, and just share the love of Christ in any way that we possibly can. Just a couple of quick announcements um, before you, you leave today. Um, mentioned the Coalition Against Poverty in Suffolk. Many of you have bought tickets to the, um, the, barbecue, the fundraiser today. Um, so that's going to be over at Westminster. But they have extra plates, um, even if you haven't bought tickets. So um, you might want to stop by there for, for lunch today. Um, also, just a, another just calendar issue, just a reminder, the first Sunday in October, we'll kind of relaunch our kids and student ministries, um, K through five and middle and high school, and of course that'll take place at 9.30 at the same time that um, our other Bible studies are, are meeting. Um, and then one more, again, just a calendar issue, and that is um, a fundraiser for missions um, that'll be on October 
30th, and this is going to go to help Martin and Carrie in Bangkok. So many of you have been um, a part of that ministry. Some of you have gone to Bangkok and served there in the ministry to refugees. Part of what they do as they share the gospel is that they take food and supplies um, to people. And so um, the, all the money that we raise on that day is going to go to help uh, purchase uh, food uh, for the refugee ministry in Bangkok. So that's on um, October 30th. Just kind of mark your Mark your date um, for that. Listen, God bless you this week. Go forth and serve the Lord and know that as you go, you are sent on mission. God bless you. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 